Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Colin, I'm very stressed out. Do you want to know why I'm so stressed out? Please. I'm stressed out because Halloween is coming and they keep showing these trailers or these commercials for Halloween spooky stuff. And I'm sitting, chilling with my kids, watching Real Housewives, and then up pops something. And then for the rest of the night, I can't sleep. So I'm slightly stressed out. I guess I won't be inviting you to see Halloween Kills with me later. No, you know, you can give me the cliff notes. Actually, no, no, I don't need to know. (laughs) (laughs) What uh, what documentary are you talking about today? Uh, On today's episode, we're going to be talking about Oscar Peterson Black and White with its director, Barry Averich. I get up in the morning, I think piano. I go to bed at night, I think piano. I am a jazz pianist. That's all I want to be. Who's at the top of the heap? Oscar. I didn't know that a piano could be played that fast off the top of your head. Oscar Peterson is what Muhammad Ali meant to boxing and what Michael Jordan meant to basketball. Have you listened to a lot of Oscar Peterson, Ann? I gotta say that, unfortunately, I haven't. And the music that I have heard, I didn't realize it was his, uh, including the song we're going to be talking about in in a moment. Um, His music is beautiful, too. And I think that's the point of this documentary, that here is this immensely talented musician in Canada that's respected and admired worldwide. Yet, how many Canadians could identify his music? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I'll just give a bit of a jazz primer for our listeners. Oscar Peterson was born in Montreal in 1925. He was a pianist, a singer, a composer. He was called the Maharaj of the keyboard by his fellow jazz legend, Duke Ellington. Uh, Peterson, you know, he performed basically all over the world, and he has, you know, just an entire list of awards and accolades. He's, he's a legend. Put it simply, he's a very, he's a legend. And, and despite uh, his legendary status as a musician, uh, he still faced discrimination as a black man. He sold out huge venues, but he wasn't even able to stay at the same hotels or even use the same washrooms as the white performers, which is, you know, to think about it now, it's just so enraging. Yeah, that's right. Well, one song that Peterson is well known for is called uh, Hymn to Freedom, which he wrote in 1962, just as the civil rights movement was really gaining steam across North America. What do you think of that song? Yeah, I've heard that song many times before, and I had no idea it was written by a Canadian. The song is sang in churches around the world, and it became the anthem for the civil rights movement. It speaks to the commonalities we share and how we are all equal and want to be treated with dignity. Even with a version where there are no lyrics, there is so much emotion to how he plays the piano that you can feel the sadness, but you can also feel the hope. Well, in our conversation, we talk about Peterson's legacy as a musician, but also about the many challenges he faced, including discrimination. So let's go to my conversation. This is me and filmmaker Barry Averich. All right. Well, Barry Averich, thank you so much for joining me today on OnDocs. Pleasure to be here. I just want to start by kind of contextualizing Oscar Peterson a bit for our listeners, because I think when we talk about jazz music, we often go to artists like Miles Davis, Louis Armstrong, or Ella Fitzgerald. And I just wonder if you could tell us maybe about where Oscar Peterson might rank in that list of artists. 
Oscar Peterson is right up there with with all of the great ones that you mentioned from Duke and Count and Art Tatum and, and uh, all the legends. I, I think if, if there's a reason why he may not, it's probably because he was too patriotic and came back to Canada uh, every time to live here. Uh, and I always say this with some controversy that, you know, we have a, we have a hard time celebrating our own uh, uh, when they come back or decide to stay here for some reason. I don't know what it is, but uh, there's no question, you know, Oscar, if there's going to be a Mount Rushmore of jazz, his head is carved into the stone with the great ones. Do you know why he decided to stay here? Well, I think for, you know, I'm not putting myself in the same league of talent, but it's the same reason as a filmmaker. I stayed in Toronto instead of going to Los Angeles or New York. It, it's just uh, a better country to live in. Uh, and this was always his home. And when you're traveling on the road and from hotels to venues, everything starts to blur and, and Toronto becomes and Canada becomes a bit of an oasis uh, to, to always escape to. And uh, I, I think that's always was his home base. Same thing for Norman Jewison, you know, and same issues in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how he is ranked and, and considered. He's one of the great film directors of all time, responsible for, you know, five or six of the greatest movies of all time. And yet people have a hard time remembering him when you're listing the greatest directors of all time. And still managed to attract a lot of talent to his movies. Sure does. At, you know, and again, same thing for Oscar Peterson. He was the go-to musician uh, for, uh, you know, another 200 albums that weren't necessarily his own. Everybody wanted Oscar on their album because it was a, a level of musicmanship that no one had ever seen and will ever see again. Let's talk a bit about where Oscar came from because he's, you know, born in Montreal. Actually, there's a great clip of Quincy Jones talking about Oscar Peterson being from Montreal of all places. I wonder if you could just talk a bit about what Montreal's place in the jazz world is. Well, I grew up in Montreal and, and uh, I, I was lucky enough to live in a house that there was always music available. There were those six or seven records. And, and I just, as I, I listened to them over and over and over and, and uh, my mother uh, took me to pretty much every concert there was at Place des Arts in Montreal, including Oscar Peterson several times and Pearl Bailey and Hello Dolly and Diana Ross and uh, Nana Mascori. I didn't even know what that name meant, but I went. Uh, and then when I became a teenager and started to venture out on my own, I started to find jazz clubs in Montreal. Um, and that blew my mind because it was just, I just loved live music and never forgot it. Uh, and any city that I'm in where I know that there's a jazz club, I'll go. Uh, and so uh, Oscar, the jazz scene in Montreal was, uh, was alive. The Alberta Lounge and other places that were starting to thrive. And uh, Oscar, as a 13, 14, 15-year-old, uh, seemed to find his way, even as a youngster, to those clubs where everybody wanted to see this extraordinary prodigy play without sheet music. Just those hands were lightning, as, as somebody said in the film, I think Ramsey Lewis, that you, you, you'd never see two hands cover 88 keys like that ever. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's what the amazing thing was. And back to your earlier question about, you know, where does Oscar sit and remembering Oscar, I think compared to some of the other artists like Miles Davis, you know, Oscar wasn't, uh, there wasn't drama and scandal that followed him. I think like all artists, there, you know, there's certain, there was depression, there was, uh, you know, family and marital conflicts as there, as there is on the road. But there wasn't drama. You know, his drug was that piano. So, you know, people tend to look for the Finding Neverland to remember an artist. Uh, it wasn't the case with him. But back to Montreal, 
It was a city that was alive with music. And even when I moved to Toronto in 82, I had a hard time finding and replicating that jazz scene uh, when I arrived until I found there was a magnificent club in Toronto at the time called the Blue Note uh, and saw artists uh, like Junior Walker and the All-Stars that would come in and Liberty Silver and Jackie Richardson and mm. uh, Salome Bay and on and on and on, Molly Johnson. It was like, okay, there is a jazz scene in Toronto. And then, of course, the Montreal Jazz Bistro in Toronto, <laughs> aptly named Montreal, was another sort of mecca to go to. So I think, you know, in, in Oscar growing up, he found his roots quickly in that musical scene there and then just exploded from there. So I guess when did the idea for a doc about him start to kind of percolate for you? You know, I did a doc a couple of years ago on David Foster uh, and got my feet wet on my first music documentary and really loved uh, doing the research, finding the music, finding the influence he had as a pro as a producer and really wanted to do something again, but with an artist, uh, a performer and wanted to do something Canadian. Uh, my partners in the film uh, Jeffrey Latimer, who, who is the CEO of Canada's Walk of Fame. I wanted to somehow tie that in. Uh, and, uh, and I started to think of who that might be. I mean, you know, with Celine Dion, there's been a thousand documentaries and there's plenty of others. And then I sort of went back to those six albums that my parents had. Uh, Etta James, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, and Oscar Peterson. And I decided that Oscar Peterson was what I wanted to do. I really didn't see much that had been done on him in a major way uh, and approached uh, Bell Media uh, and Randy Lennox at the time who came from Universal Music, understood music, and he said, go to it, absolutely. And I was thrilled, Colin, in that the um, level of participation from musicians wasn't a huge arm twist. Uh, the people that you see in the film. I pretty much got everyone I wanted with the exception of Chick Corea, who I did have lined up and sadly passed away. But, uh, you know, everybody certainly wanted to get together and, and, uh, and talk Oscar. I definitely want to get to some of the people you talk about or talk to in the film, but I guess we should talk a bit more about the man uh, himself. So, you know, he was born, I think, in, in 1925 in Montreal. Um, why does he become a jazz pianist? Well, his father was looking for ways to bring discipline to the house. He spent long periods of time on, on the train, his father working for CN Railroads. He'd be away a long time. And so how do you ensure that your children remain disciplined when the father figure isn't necessarily there? Uh, and his father was uh, a musician too. And so he introduced uh, uh, piano um, to the house. Uh, and uh, various wind instruments, but specifically with Oscar, was the piano. And so that was the influence, as well as his sister Daisy, who was, you know, an incredible pianist as well and, and taught, influenced Oscar. And, and his dad uh, would bring home uh, jazz albums for Oscar to listen to, and, and he could emulate them and then take them to the next level. And he had other teachers as well. Uh, but that's that's how he first got introduced to music and exploded on the scene. I mean, you know, imagine playing your 13 and 14 year old and you're in demand and wins a, a contest on CBC and and, and gets discovered very early, uh, uh, you know, uh, by Norman Granz, this phenomenal international jazz promoter who happens to hear him on the radio in a taxi and says to the taxi driver, who is that? Turn the taxi around. I got I got to see this guy. 
Yeah, Norman Granz, yeah, he's he plays a pretty prominent role in Oscar Peterson's life. I guess, um, could you talk a bit about him and, and I guess his role in, I guess, uh, shepherding Peterson's career? Norman Granz was a, you know, a, a, a phenomenal uh, music uh, promoter. Uh, you know, when you think of the Rolling Stones, you think of Bill Graham, and he's the guy that sort of brought the Rolling Stones and put them on the road and toured them. And when you think about jazz, it's Norman Granz. Norman Granz uh, took jazz out of the basement nightclubs uh, in New York and other cities internationally and said, look, if, if, if I can take jazz and elevate the art form outside of a smoke-filled room where people aren't really listening and there are those that are, most that aren't, but why shouldn't these jazz musicians play on the great stages in the world? And so he created something called Jazz at the Philharmonic and took jazz to Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall, uh, uh, London, Paris, all over Europe. And really these phenomenal musicians, specifically black musicians who had been segregated to those basement clubs who really didn't have an audience outside of that, suddenly the entire art form was elevated into something that was as good as, if not better than, than the white groups of this, of, you know, the dance bands and the, you know, the Benny Hermans and the Tommy Dorseys and the Benny Goodmans and all of those guys that were playing, uh, that were getting massive audiences where jazz was not. So uh, Norman Granz gets credit for taking jazz to another uh, level and also touring it internationally, which puts Oscar and his and his great musicians like Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Ella, as I mentioned, on the road, and also gives uh, uh, encourages Oscar to develop as an artist by helping him select the brilliant musicians that he plays with during his career, Roy Eldridge and Herb Ellis and Dave Young and, and, and so many others, which was just perfection. Yeah, jazz seemed to be like an avenue for black musicians to really make it, right? And and um, they didn't really have, like you said, kind of they didn't have the same opportunities that other other orchestras. So I guess, I wonder how Peterson, I guess, processed that. How, how did he process that kind of inequity? Well, I mean, the thing about Oscar, I mean, a, a great intellectual, great academic. And at the same time, as he says in the beginning of my documentary, I came to play. And his career is a freight train. It just goes and goes and goes. And there's not a lot of uh, uh, valleys. He just keeps moving. And so I don't know that he ever stopped to process anything other than to just want to play and keep elevating the art forum, uh, and you know, if you listen, uh, it's funny when we were doing our research internationally for footage because I wanted Oscar to tell the story, not me. You just you watch his interviews, uh, and and you you see uh, the 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 pace in which he was working. It's it's just unheard of. He just never stopped. And he also played in a style that wasn't, I guess, organic to Canada. I mean, it was more in line with, uh, I guess, the juke joints and the um, clubs in, in the South, the American South. I think this is something that John ba- Baptiste mentions. He's obviously a, a well-respected uh, jazz artist. Um, how does that happen? <laughs> how does someone from Montreal or someone from Canada, I guess, develop that style? Well, you have to go really far back to sort of discover, and, and, and it really needs to be done to look at the history of, of black music in Canada in terms of coming in through the original settlers uh, and and the Caribbean influence and Creole music that was coming into Canada early on and whatnot. There, there's, you know, there's, there's that influence. But Oscar was listening to what was on the radio. Uh, and Oscar was listening to his idols at the time. And I mean, and there's this wonderful story in the film where his father brings a, an Art Tatum album, who was really uh, the precursor to Oscar to be able to play 
that way. And there's a difference. I mean, we all look at those Jerry Lee Lewis uh, performances where he's smashing the piano with his hands and his feet and, uh, and the way, you know, uh, 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 Chuck Berry played the guitar, just, just trashing it. That wasn't really musicmanship. You know, Art Tatum, and who influenced Oscar, there was a, an incredible symphonic uh, and yet uh, this magic in the way he played. It was just, you know, when you watch his hands, every note was in place, and yet it was so thoughtful. So, you know, Oscar had people that he was influenced by, but who can understand that magic in his hands? It, it's, it was just magnificent. Well, despite his prominence as an artist, Peterson was still denied the opportunity to be in the same hotels as white artists. And there are stories where he had close encounters with the police where he could have been killed. And I was just wondering how Peterson, I guess, dealt with the racism around him. Well, I mean, he, Oscar had experienced prejudice in Montreal growing up. Uh, and, you know, and he wrote about uh, um, taking his daughter to school for the first time in Montreal uh, and, and where, you know, he saw uh, extreme cases of prejudice in, in a mixed school. Um, so this wasn't foreign to him. Um, he was told before he went out on the road that it was going to be tough uh, and that there were going to be that there was going to be, you know, extreme racism on the road. But you can be you could tell somebody anything until you've come face to face with it. And it's it's incredibly scary. What was tough for him to process, Colin, was the fact that how do you distinguish between an audience that watches you play and there's such adulation uh, and enormous praise and that same audience will not shake your hand after the show. And he, that would happen to him. He'd come off the stage and somebody would say, oh my God, that was the greatest performance I'd ever seen. Thank you, Oscar. And Oscar would put his hand out and say, thank you, my pleasure. Tell me about you. Thank you very much. And they, and they go, well, we're not going to shake your hand. <laughs> or he'd finish an incredible performance, standing ovation, and ask to use the bathroom. And they'd say, oh, no, no, no. There's an outhouse in the back of the theater <laughs> or the restaurant or the nightclub. That was, you know, incredibly difficult, aside from, you know, the, the, some of the, the violence that he was seeing on the road and obviously the, the, you know, the birth of the civil rights movement, incredibly influenced by uh, Martin Luther King's speech uh, and address. And, and that's, you know, that's where he feels that he's got to address it in his music and, of course, writes him to freedom, uh, one of the greatest uh, eye-opening uh, calls to... To, uh, to of an awakening that had ever been written in music. Well, well tell me about Hymn to Freedom a bit more. Uh, what was the significance of that song in Oscar Peterson's repertoire? Well, I mean, you know, Oscar was, at, you know, seeing what he had seen on the road uh, and, you know, and certainly seeing what was happening on television and reading in the newspapers, you know, it, it, it was bothering him. Uh, and, you know, and he confided in Norman Granz that, you know, this, this was awful and what could he do? And Norman said to him, do what you do, right. Let it pour out of you. And so, you know, he, he wrote that beautiful song. Uh, and then uh, later on, uh, the lyrics uh, were, you know, were added and written uh, for it. Uh, and, you know, and what the song says is that, you know, we have to come together.
And Colin, for me, you know, when I listened to that song again and doing the research for the film, I realized that, you know, and it's no great revelation, but the song is still resonates today. Uh, and, and that's why I specifically, you know, chose to juxtapose the footage of the civil rights movement uh, in, in the 60s with the same footage that's going on today uh, and, and say, gee, has anything really changed? What would Oscar think? Uh, and as you know, and as we point out in the film, Obama selects him to freedom for his inauguration. Could have chose any piece of music. Uh, many artists wrote about uh, uh, that time and the current time. Uh, many artists, as, as uh, Bradford Marsalis uh, points out in the film, but you know Obama chose that, so that spoke to me. And I, I, a very important section in the film. Can you talk a bit more about some of the, the people you choose to, to interview? Because you have not just Billy Joel, but Quincy Jones and Herbie Hancock and John Baptiste, who I mentioned earlier. We all, but you also have... Uh, you know, music historians and journalists. I guess, what was, I guess, the, the process like for selecting all these uh, interviews? Well, it comes back to, the, you know, why this structure of the film? Uh, and let me come back to that. I mean, I call the film a docu-concert, uh, and I wanted to do something different than just purely have uh, a great cast of talking heads, as there are in documentaries, but the structure of the film came to me it was really an inspiration of a film I saw in 2002 at the Toronto Film Festival called Standing in the Shadows of Motown, uh, where the audience would get lost in these wonderful musical breaks where the Funk Brothers, who were the backline to Motown, would play musical pieces. And I just, I just thought it was magnificent. I never forgot that. And I said to myself, gee, if I ever make a film about, about a musical artist again, I'm going to do that. Uh, and, and I saw it again in, in uh, 20 Feet from Stardom where they bring Mary Clayton in and she listens to her naked vocal tracks on Gimme Shelter. Uh, mm. And so I wanted that structure of concert and, and interviews and archival footage. So that was the, the recipe, the formula. Choosing the cast for the film, I wanted some emerging artists. I wanted legends. Uh, I wanted those that people wouldn't necessarily think about. So, yes, Quincy Jones, king of them all, uh, and love them. Uh, and then Herbie Hancock, you know, jazz contemporary uh, of, of Oscar Peterson's. Ramsey Lewis, jazz contemporary who can understand being on the road and what Oscar's influences were. And then people like John Batiste, who I think carries on Oscar's phenomenal uh, style. When, you know, if you watch John Batiste play, I mean, it's that same frenetic power in his hands that Oscar has. Uh, and, uh, and, and then, you know, Billy Joel and uh, Branford Marsalis, I had approached uh, Winton Marsalis and, and Winton said, look, you know, it's really my father, Ellis, who's gone, you know, who has the, the connections to Oscar, but it's it really my brother, not me. And so that's where I went to Branford Marsalis. And he was, I thought, very, very powerful. And the historians themselves, Dr. Kitty uh, Oliver and uh, uh, Rosemary, um, Sandler or were both essential to me to understand the significance of Oscar, the significance of jazz music, and the significance of what Oscar faced on the road, as well as legacy. Well, you know, he, he passed in, in 2007, and I have to ask if he had been alive, you know, for this film to be released, if, if there was a question you would have wanted to ask him. Well, that's a great question. I, I mean, for those that I've interviewed in my documentaries that are that have been alive, 
I generally ask him if there, you know, if there's, I would have said to him, is there, do you feel satiated? Do you feel that there's a composition that left, that got left off the table? Do you feel that there's a collaboration that you would have liked uh, uh, even today? I mean, that's why, you know, I loved watching, um, although it's pop, I love watching Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga. I love watching Tony Bennett and Amy Whitehouse. I love those collaborations. So is there somebody that, you know, Oscar, you would have, like to jam with because he just loved to play and then I think you know certainly that legacy question of you know how he wants to be remembered uh, is key but as I think that they keep you know naming things after him from schools to parks to squares to subway stations and murals so I think he's well remembered in Canada you know I, I, uh, I I'd certainly uh, like to make sure that his legacy continues all over the world and I think it will with this film Definitely. Well, listen, this has been an awesome conversation. I just wonder if there's anything that you're working on that you can talk about, anything you want to plug? I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> uh, I, well, two things I'm, you know, I'm excited about. I, I made a film last year called Made You Look uh, uh, about you know, one of the great art frauds of all time. And I'm excited that we're developing that into a scripted series. Uh, and then I just started shooting a um, feature documentary on uh, Rosalia Bella, Supreme Court justice icon, Canada's RBG, um, who just stepped down. So we're shooting that now, and I'm excited about that. Do you, how do you kind of, I guess, pick projects? Like, what's your sort of, I guess, um, I don't know, process for, like, choosing subjects and stuff? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a commercial person. You know, came from the advertising world on that end of it. So I, I, I choose projects that of stories I want to tell that I think have uh, commercial merit. And then, you know, stories that I think in a lot of ways are untold. Uh, could be somebody famous, it could be somebody infamous, it could be somebody that, you know, that is unknown, that should be known. But I never pick a project where it's going to be 100% a passion project where I, it's just going to be impossible to find an audience for. I'm not really interested in spending 10 years working on the gestation period of the Canadian beaver. Um, <laughs> Someone else can do that. So I, I do like to find things that are uh, uh, interesting and fast-paced, and I, I think we'll find a good audience. I'll end on this, because um, you mentioned before, you just, you know, how in Canada we're sort of, we struggle to kind of, I guess, I don't know, celebrate our own, you know, and, and um, sometimes I think, you know, when they go to L.A. or, you know, go to uh, the United States, we sort of, you know, think they've, I guess, transcended us. Is there a Canadian that you think is worthy of a film or, or a book or anything that you any, any Canadian you'd like to see, I guess, celebrated? Wow. Uh, I mean, so many of them. I mean, I mentioned Norman Jewison earlier. I mean, you know, he has had, I mean, he's 90, uh, maybe, maybe older. Uh, I, I think that he's had an extraordinary career. He's been, you know, he's had great tributes, but given the, the, the barriers that he broke in filmmaking, I think, you know, he should certainly be, uh, somebody that is, uh, uh, honored with a documentary without a doubt um, and it shouldn't be posthumously uh, and uh, and then you know I think again I started to work on this but I do think that there needs to be a uh, a doc series that looks at the history of, of black music and black influence in Canada beyond Drake and The Weeknd and you know and, and, and other famous people where did it begin uh, I think that needs to be done Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed the film, and uh, I've liked your other uh, films as well. I, I really Thank thought you. Prosecuting Evil was excellent, and uh, I actually saw a short film you produced called Out On My Way Out many a few years ago. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely I love that film. I thought that was so moving. 
Thank you. Yeah. It was really good talking with you, Barry. Thank you so much. Anytime, Colin. Thank you. And that's the podcast. Oscar Peterson, Black and White, is now streaming on Crave. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us? It helps new listeners find the show. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Lori Few. We'll catch you at the next screening. We have a lot of Amaras and O'Connors. <laughs> <laughs> we should change it to O'Alice, O'Kiwanuka. <laughs>